Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast." For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height or depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance on our time in his word this morning. Father, we are so thankful for your word because you revealed this to us. This is not the opinions of men. It is not a record of uh, individuals' uh, own experience or reflection upon their experiences with, uh, with you or some religious experience, but it is the uh, objective revelation of your will, your truth to us uh, through the human authors. And you oversaw the process so that it is preserved from error that we might have confidence that this is the truth and that we can know the truth and the truth will set us free. Father, we pray that as we study your word today that we might be challenged by the example of Hezekiah and by the truths that are uh, embedded within this portion of Scripture that it might challenge us to a more faithful prayer life, a more consistent prayer life, and to greater trust in you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. As we go through this section we're studying now in Second uh, Kings, chapter 19 and 20, the emphasis is on how the prayer of Hezekiah changed historical circumstance. Prayer is not just a psychological uh, uh, exercise that somehow makes us feel better because we have taken some time to meditate or to formulate some thoughts and therefore it helps us uh, merely on a psychological basis to think differently about things. Prayer is communication with God. It is an objective communication with God based upon the principles that God has given us in his word for how we are to come into his presence and how we are to communicate with him. And he has not only given us specific direct statements in Scripture to teach us how we should pray as we ought, but he also has given us many examples in Scripture of prayers made by Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, made by prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, that give us a pattern for prayer. There are many different kinds of prayers that we find in the Scripture. There are prayers of confession. There are prayers simply of praise, expressing adoration and awe for God and all that he has done. There are prayers of gratitude. There are prayers of 
uh, petition or intercessory petition where we are uh, praying for others. And this is uh, seen many times in Scripture as well as prayers for one's own uh, life and one, uh, one's own situation. So those are prayers of supplication. So we have all of these different kinds of prayers laid out in the Scripture. Sometimes our prayer, prayers may include all of those elements. Sometimes they may just include one of those elements. Prayer can be long or prayer can be rather short. But what we see again and again and again as you look at the prayers in the Scripture is that they are uh, well-organized and well-articulated. They are not necessarily uh, prayers that are just uh, on the spur of the moment, prayers that are just uh, <clears throat> random or uh, just... Uh, ideas that just come in randomly to the mind of the individual, uh, but they are well thought out and they are well structured. Now, that doesn't mean that every time you pray, you have to spend 15 or 20 minutes sitting down and writing out a prayer and structuring it and organizing it. But on the other hand, it doesn't mean that, uh, that you shouldn't do that more often than we probably do do that. And what we see in these prayers is that they are have a consistent pattern of being grounded on certain promises, certain uh, covenants that God has made with man in the Scripture, and it is on the basis of those covenants, and it's on the basis of those promises that the people of God, whether it is uh, whether in the Old Testament or the New Testament, go to God, and they basically come to God and outline an argument, like a legal argument, not an argument in the sense of a disputation, but an argument in the sense of presenting a case for why God should act on their behalf, why God should intervene in the normal flow of history in order to change things. And what we see is the, the these prayers are crafted on the basis of prior revelation of God, so that if we do not know the Word of God, then we cannot pray effectively in this manner. And it's very interesting. We'll see some examples of this when we get into uh, our, in our study of the book of Acts, especially when we get into Acts chapter 4 and some uh, prayers subsequent to that, how the apostles would take uh, different elements from different uh, psalms, and they would put these together to form a, an appeal to God, to appeal to his grace, appeal to his power, appeal to his faithfulness to act on their behalf. And again and again what we see is that the prayers in the Scripture focus on the character and the attributes of God, praying for, his, a, for God to be faithful, praying that on the basis of his omnipotence, on the basis of his uh, veracity, his, the fact that he has truly revealed things to us, that he act in a certain way. And this is <clears throat> exemplified as well in this prayer that is uttered by Hezekiah in Second Kings chapter 19. But one element of this prayer that we see is that it is effective and God intervenes in a miraculous way to solve the problem that is facing the southern kingdom of Judah solved the problem that is facing Jerusalem, which specifically in this case is that they have been surrounded by the armies of Sennacherib. 
that they have been under siege, as it were, and this went on for a lengthy period of time. Isaiah indicates that uh, it had an impact on the economy of the southern kingdom for three years. Now, the siege did not last that long, but it lasted for uh, some time. Some suggest a year, some suggest a year and a half, as Sennacherib had invaded from the north and he had conquered some 42 uh, villages or towns in the in, um, in the area of Israel and Philistia and Phoenicia, and it takes time to do that. So uh, this had laid waste to the economy. Uh, you think things might be bad here or in some parts of the economy in the United States today, well, or even in the Great Depression, well, we have no idea what it would be like when invaded by a foreign army. Just think about the devastating impact upon the economy that occurred in Europe during the Second World War as towns and villages were just laid waste. People uh, <clears throat> had more important things to fear about than just their, their uh, jobs because their very lives were, were threatened and, and careers, jobs, stores, marketplaces, all of that were just, were just destroyed in the time of war. And so the same kind of thing was going on in the southern kingdom of Judah. And so God answers Hezekiah's prayer, and he intervenes in history, and he changes the, what ha- would normally happen. And a lot of times people adopt, even though they may not be of a <clears throat> strong Calvinistic mindset, nevertheless people get influenced by a certain degree of fatalism that, well, God is in control. Why should I go ahead? Why should I pray for this and that? I don't know what God's plan is. I'm just not going to pray for things. And we somehow abuse the doctrine of the sovereignty of God and use that as an excuse not to pray, not to uh, plead with God to change circumstances. In James chapter 4, verse 2, the second part of the verse, James makes the statement, yet you do not have because you do not ask. He goes on to say some other things related to the fact that they asked for certain things, but they asked wrongly, and because they were asking maybe for right things, but in a wrong way or from a wrong motivation, God did not answer those prayers. But he also uh, condemns them because they, there are things that they should have asked for that God would have granted and God would have intervened in history to change things. And prayer really does change things. And we have a tendency to lose confidence in prayer. And many people take end up taking prayer for granted. I think of a lot of the areas in our spiritual life, the area that is treated the most cavalierly and casually by Christians is in the area of prayer, both individual prayer as well as prayer in the local church. You can go to many local churches today, and they virtually don't have a midweek prayer service, which was typical at most churches throughout most of history, a time set aside where people in the congregation would come together and would pray together as a group. We have our prayer meeting, if you don't know, on Tuesday night at 7 o'clock. At times it has been more well attended than it is now, and it's easy for us to get so busy that, well, we can just somehow let that slide and not pay attention to that. But that is a, a very uh, poor 
showing, and it's really sad to see that. I know of churches that have just because only one or two people show up for prayer meeting, they quit having prayer meeting and just hope that somehow people are praying. I think of all of the things that a church does in terms of ministry, it's prayer ministry, both in terms of providing a prayer list for the congregation to be uh, praying for one another. Again and again, Scripture uh, enjoins us to pray for one another. So we need to know how to pray for one another. And uh, a lot of times people are reticent to express what uh, the circumstances might be in their life, and I understand that. Sometimes we don't want to give too much details over some things, but we need to be praying for one another, praying knowledgeably for one another. We need to be praying corporately uh, for one another, and this is why we have a, a, a time set aside on Tuesday night for folks to come together and pray. Now, I know sometimes people don't feel real comfortable praying out loud. Uh, <clears throat> when I was young, I remember probably uh, as a high schooler going to Camp Penile and going on the work crew up there. This was something that we would, where I first became aware of group prayer. And for a long time, you feel a little uh, intimidated, you're a little shy, you're a little bashful, and it may take some time before you pray. And so we don't want people to ever feel like they're under compulsion to pray out loud when they come to prayer meeting on Tuesday night. They can just sit there quietly and pray quietly to the Lord, and that's fine because the Lord hears one way or the other. We have the promise in Scripture, too, that is that um, <clears throat> we don't always know how we ought to pray for things or precisely what we ought to pray for, but we are to pray. We're also told that we are supposed to pray for specific things, but God the Holy Spirit is the one who superintends our prayer life so that even when we pray for things and it's not quite right or we don't really understand the way things should be, God the Holy Spirit somehow uh, superintends, translates, transmits those prayers in a way that that makes them acceptable because we don't know how to pray as, as we ought. So whether you're praying out loud or just privately in your own mind, in your own soul, uh, God the Holy Spirit is omniscient and he knows what the prayers are and he's able to handle the situation so we don't need to limit God in that way. But this is something that I encourage you to think seriously about in terms of your own uh, ministry and part of your responsibility within a local church is being part of uh, the corporate prayer life of the local church. Now I want you to turn here to 2 Kings chapter 19, and we're going to take a look at this second prayer of Hezekiah. The first prayer isn't really stated in the first verse, we're just told that he went into the house of the Lord and he prayed, and then we had studied the answer to that prayer that Isaiah gave in uh, verse uh, 6 and 7. But then there's another circumstance. The Rabshaka, who had uh, been with the uh, group that of uh, the Rabshaka, the Rabsaris, and the Tartan, in verse 17 of the last chapter, had come, and they had had a meeting with uh, Hezekiah's representatives. And at that meeting, they emphasized uh, that, that uh, Hezekiah and the, the, the Jews in Jerusalem just couldn't trust God. How can you trust him? Look, these all these other gods that uh, these other people, these other areas trusted, well, that their gods didn't save them. How in the world can your God uh, save you. They blasphemed and uh, belittled God in their confrontation 
But Hezekiah's representatives were wise in that they said nothing. Hezekiah understood the proverb of Solomon that uh, we are not to answer a fool according to his folly. And so they kept their mouth shut, but they came back and they reported everything to Hezekiah. That was what was the uh, immediate cause of his going into the temple for the first prayer covered in the first seven verses of this chapter. But now the, uh, there will be a second confrontation. So the Rabshakeh in verse 8 goes back to Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, and discovers that he's continuing his uh, attack and assault against various towns and villages in, um, in Judah, and that he had departed uh, from Lachish, and he is warring against Livna. And then there is a report that the king, verse 9, that the king heard concerning Terhaka, the king of Ethiopia. This is the king of Pharaoh, who is the Pharaoh of the upper, upper Nile area, which is to the south. At this time, the kingdom of Egypt was split. There were two dynasties, one in the north, one in the south. And Terhaka is coming up. He's the king of Ethiopia. He says, look, uh, he's come out to make war with you. So he is going to be threatened now from his southern flank, even though he's confident that with his armies he can uh, destroy the army of Egypt, which he did. But he sends uh, a messenger a second time to Hezekiah and uh, sends the Rabshakeh back. In verse 10, gives him his orders. He says, uh, this is what you shall say to Hezekiah, the king of Judah. Do not let your God, in whom you trust, deceive you saying, Jerusalem shall not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. So again, he formulates his attack in theological terms. And I've drawn the parallel uh, in the last few weeks between the certain threats that the United States faces today, especially from Islam, that this is a theological war from their perspective. They are on a mission. The Quran sends uh, the followers of, of Muhammad and Allah on a mission to dominate the world, to bring all of the world under or into submission to Allah. That's what Islam means. It means submission. And if you are not in the house of, of, uh, uh, of peace or the house of, of Islam, then you are in the house of war. And it is fine to ha- you, the only place where Islam is a religion of peace is to those who are in the house of Islam or the house of peace. If you are not a Muslim, you are outside of the house of peace, the Dar es Salaam, and you are in the house of war. And so it's fine to lie, to cheat, to steal, to uh, engage in any level of subterfuge in order to further the cause of Allah in this uh, task of world domination. And after Europe defeated the armies of Islam in the 17th century as they were uh, trying to uh, invade Europe. And, of course, there was uh, the battle outside of Vienna. Later on in the 17th century, there's the uh, 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 naval battle that occurred uh, at at, uh, Lepanto where the uh, uh, naval forces of Islam were defeated. After that, it is when you, you get about 400 years when Islam is unable to pull their act together and to attack the West. But that doesn't mean that they gave up on the concept. 
and since they have uh, petrodollars to fund them now, they are engaged once again in their task of world domination. And the sad thing is that in the, in the West, we have become so deeply and profoundly secular that we cannot understand and comprehend a people that are energized and motivated uh, so completely by a view of God and a theological system. And so we discount it. Our leaders discount it because they can't comprehend it. It's beyond their understanding because they don't believe in anything anymore. They can't understand how anybody else could believe in a, a system that would do that. And so they've compromised uh, themselves at the very foundation of thought by denying the existence of God. Therefore, they can't interpret reality correctly uh, anymore. And so this opens us up to a very real and dangerous threat, which we've seen going on not just since 9-11, but actually since uh, the rise of, uh, of uh, <coughs> the Shiites in, uh, when they overthrew the Shah in, uh, in Iran in uh, 1979. So this has been going on and will continue to go on and will define the, probably the rest of our lives, unless something radical takes place and somebody uses uh, nuclear weapons to defang uh, Islam. No other, nothing else in my mind can stop them than something that extreme. I'm not advocating that. I'm just saying that, that it has to be stopped with the way they are uh, uh, increasing their numbers of population in Europe, with the way the Western governments are kowtowing to them and to all of their acts of intimidation and terrorism and with the way the West is already changing their behaviors and their structures and their laws, in many cases giving levels of credence to Sharia law, it is only getting worse. No one is standing up to them. And so this is the same kind of situation that Hezekiah faced as he saw the rise of the threat of Assyria, and it grew and it grew and it grew, and now they are at that uh, tragic point where they are actually under uh, direct assault by the Assyrians. And so uh, Sennacherib phrases all of this within a theological context. Your God can't save you. In fact, he would deceive you by telling you that he can protect you. And, of course, we see the arrogance of Sennacherib here, thinking that he is more powerful than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He doesn't understand the real issue here, which is that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the one and only true God who is the creator God of the heavens and the earth and the God who rules in the affairs of men. So he goes on to say in verse um, verse 11, reflecting upon the past experience, uh, victorious experience of the Assyrian army, he says, uh, to, to remind Hezekiah of their past victory, he says, look, uh, in communicating to Hezekiah, you have heard what the kings of Assyria have done to all lands by utterly destroying them, and shall you be delivered? And he then reminds Hezekiah of how the Assyrian army marched from Nineveh, which is located in the northern part of, of Iraq, just across uh, the Tigris from uh, the modern city of Mosul. And as they moved uh, west, they conquered most of these towns. They're located on a path between uh, Nineveh and Damascus in Syria. Uh, verse 12 reads, Have the gods of the nations delivered those whom my fathers have destroyed, Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the peoples of Aden who were in Telassar? 
Where's the king of Hamath, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of Sepharvaim, Hina, and Eva? These were all uh, cities and villages and uh, small uh, countries located between Nineveh and and the northern kingdom of Israel. And over the past 20 or 30 years, from the time of Sargon II down to Sennacherib, these have all been defeated by the Assyrians. So Hezekiah received this letter from the hand of the messengers, from the Rabshakeh, and he read it. And immediately he took the letter, and we see his response. He went up to the house of the Lord. He goes to the temple, and he spread it out before the Lord. Now, he's not doubting God's ability to know what the circumstance is, but he is emphasizing the seriousness of the circumstance. He wants God to be sure to understand that this is a serious situation in the life of Israel. And what we see from the way that Hezekiah is addressing God, Hezekiah understands and he wants God to understand that this is a threat to every promise that God has made to Israel through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in terms of the Abrahamic covenant, and to Moses through the Mosaic covenant, and to David through the Davidic covenant. The foundation of understanding this prayer is to realize that Hezekiah is is going to God as the God who has made these unconditional promises in these, specifically these three covenants that we have all uh, studied uh, in the past. And so he goes into the temple, he spreads out this letter before the Lord, and then in verse 15 we read that Hezekiah prayed before the Lord. Now, I want to take a little bit of time to think through how he addresses God. We can learn a lot from this. It's not that we repeat exactly the way Hezekiah said this, but it shows us how he is crafting his thought, and it reveals that there's a lot more going on in Hezekiah's mind than simply what he says. This is a very short prayer. Uh, I will read the whole prayer, and it won't take more than probably ten seconds. He said, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see, and hear the words of Sennacherib, which he has sent to reproach the living God. Truly, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste the nations in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they destroyed them. Now, therefore, O Lord our God, I pray, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord God, you alone. That probably took about 30 seconds. So what we see here is there is an initial address to God. And we see that in verse um, verse 15. Then there is an appeal to God, which we see in verse 16, where he calls upon God to incline your ear, open your eyes and see and hear these words. In verse 17, he then reminds God or states the past history of the uh, Assyrian army and how they have been victorious, and then he comes to his conclusion in verse 19, expressing his petition to God. So first of all, his address to God focuses on the reality of this prayer. It is not some subjective prayer that is just some psychological or emotional exercise. 
on the part of Paul, I mean on the part of Hezekiah, which is how modern psychologists and psychologized religion wants to interpret prayer as something that just has a subjective value. He addresses God as the Lord God of Israel. The Lord God of Israel, he uses the uh, sacred name for God, Y-H-W-H in the Hebrew, which has been wrongly uh, stated as Jehovah, which is a combination of the consonants from the name of God with the vowels from uh, the, the uh, Hebrew word Adonai for Lord, because in uh, uh, Jew, out of respect for God's name in Judaism, uh, the Jews do not pronounce his name. They either uh, say the word Adonai instead of pronouncing the name of God, or uh, a more modern trend has been to use the name Hashem, the Hebrew word Hashem meaning the name. And so whenever this name is used of God, it is always associated with the Mosaic Covenant. Because when Moses was in the uh, wilderness of Midian, and God appeared to him in the burning bush to call him and commission him to go deliver uh, the Israelites from slavery in Egypt, uh, Moses said, okay, I will do this, but who should I say has sent me? And God said that the Israelites had not known him by this name, and that doesn't mean that the name wasn't used before, but the significance of the name had not been uh, revealed. And he reveals it at that time, saying that he is, I am that I am. And that is because the name of God, Y-H-W-H, is based on the Hebrew verb hayah, which means to be. It is the uh, Hebrew for existence, and the name I am that I am means that God is the self-existent one. He is the eternal God. And so whenever we read this name in the scriptures, it often emphasizes that he is the one who made this unconditional covenant with Israel going back to Abraham and the covenant, the conditional covenant with Israel uh, under the Mosaic law. And so this is the covenant name of God. He is, so Hezekiah prays to him in terms of that name and identifies him as the Elohim, the God of Israel. He is not uh, he, he's appealing to God by using this phrase, you are the God of Israel, doesn't mean that God did not act on behalf of, of uh, Gentiles who believed in him, but that God was in a specific covenant relationship with the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that covenant relationship, he had made certain promises to Israel, both in terms of the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham's descendants, all of the earth would be blessed, but also in terms of the Mosaic covenant that God would uh, protect them if they were obedient and humbled themselves uh, under the mighty hand of God and that he would discipline them if they were disobedient. And so uh, at this time in their history, they are obedient under Hezekiah. And so he's addressing them that way. But also there's the third covenant, which is the covenant that God made with the house of David, that one of David's descendants 
would sit on the throne of Israel forever and ever. And so the house of David could not be destroyed. The house of David could not be wiped out without endangering God's promise. If there's no survivors of the house of David, then there's no one to sit on David's throne. And so all of this is embedded within this title, O Lord God of Israel, and then he expands on that and says, you are the one who dwells or is enthroned is a better way of translating the, the verb there. The verb is a verb meaning to sit, and it, the one who dwells or is enthroned between the cherubim or the cherubs. And this is a reference to the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant was... Uh, built and designed according to the specifications given by God, and it is designed to represent the holiness and the righteousness of God. It was a uh, wooden box made of acacia wood that was then covered in gold. The lid was solid gold, gold representing a deity, the wood representing something that could be corrupted. It was the hardest of all wood, so it would not be least likely to be corrupted representing, we believe, the undiminished, uh, I mean, the perfect humanity of Jesus Christ. And inside the box were placed the, uh, the symbols of Israel's sin, the broken uh, tablets of the law, the manna that they complained about because of its taste and uh, because it was the same thing every day, and, and Aaron's rod that budded, the three things that symbolized uh, three different instances of rebellion on the part of the Israelites during the time of the um, uh, Exodus generation in the wilderness. And that is covered by this uh, uh, lid of pure gold that is called the mercy seat. And on the mercy seat, there were two cherubs, and these two cherubs, uh, depict the holiness of God. The cherubs in Scripture always are associated with protection of some sort, and they are frequently associated with the holiness of God, and they are always close to the throne of God. And in Exodus 25:22, God said that there, between the cherubs, he said, I will meet with you, speaking to Moses, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. So Hezekiah is in the temple. He's not in the Holy of Holies, but he recognizes that in that dispensation, in that time, that God dwelt and was enthroned between the cherubim, and so he is in God's presence. And God is often associated with these cherubs. Now, the cherubs were a an order of angels that were closely associated with God. The plural, the I-M ending that we often see transliterated into English is the plural form, and so if you were to translate it, it would just be cherubs. And they are uh, first mentioned in the book of Genesis after Adam and Eve disobeyed God and they're ejected from the garden. God set, set, set a guard detail around the garden to prevent uh, humans from 
re-entering the garden, having access to the tree of life, or coming into the presence of God because the garden was the garden of God, and it is a, a holy place. And just as the Israelites were not allowed to touch, even touch the mountain on Mount Sinai when God came uh, to Mount Sinai and his presence was there, so man could not enter, re-enter into the Garden of Eden. And this uh, armed guard, they were armed with flaming swords of cherubs, were set around the uh, Garden of Eden. So that's one of the first places that we see them uh, in, in uh, poetry in the Old Testament. They're often used as uh, symbolical representations of the winds of heaven. So we have uh, passages like I read earlier in uh, the Psalms to, in 2 Samuel 22:11. He rode on a cherub and flew, and he appeared on the wings of the wind. And we often see this, this relationship, this connection to the wind and to God coming in judgment. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verses 2 and 7, there is a uh, mention also of the cherubs and that they are pouring out judgment. They're the ones who pour out judgment upon uh, a city, and this indicates part of their role is associated uh, with, uh, with judgment. Passages such as uh, Psalm 18.10, which I read earlier, he rode upon a cherub and flew, he sped upon the wings of the wind. Uh, these all indicate this close association between the cherubs, God's holiness, and judgment. So when he begins by emphasizing he is the one who dwells between the cherubim, this is tying it again to Israel, to God's presence in Israel, and to his protection and judgment upon uh, those who would violate uh, violate his covenant. So he begins, O Lord, open your eyes. Uh, he begins, O Lord God of Israel, the one who dwells between the cherubim. And then he says, You are God, you alone. Now this is another very important uh, aspect that we see in the Old Testament is this emphasis that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the unique God. The word uh, translated alone there can easily be understood as unique or one of a kind. He is different from all of these other gods of, of a stone and metal and wood that have been created as idols. He is the true God, and what distinguishes him from all of the other gods is that he is the one who made the heavens and the earth. And this is how he continues. He says, you are God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth, emphasizing the uniqueness, the distinctiveness of God, because he goes on to say, you have made the heavens and the earth. None of these other gods and goddesses in all of the pantheons of these various ancient Near Eastern mythologies made the heavens and the earth. They do not create ex nihilo uh, out of nothing. They always uh, create in their uh, various uh, creation myths out of something that already exists. But the God of the Bible is unique. He creates out of nothing. He is not part of the creation. He is distinct from the creation. And what we see here is that something that is unique and distinct and integral to the very person of God that we worship is that he must be understood as the creator God in the way that he describes his creation in the scripture. This is why creation is such a battlefield today. 
because this is, in the Scriptures, this is one of the ways that God is distinguished. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is distinguished from all of these other gods, and this is what makes him, uh, what makes him unique. Now, this uniqueness of God is also emphasized in passages such as uh, Isaiah 45, uh, 18. And again, it, the fact that he is a creator is part of that verse. For thus says the Lord, the creator of heaven, who alone is God, who formed the earth and made it, who alone established it. He did not create it a waste, but formed it for habitation I am the Lord, and there is none else. So, again, this is in Isaiah, and Isaiah is showing once again that you can't separate the doctrine of creation and the God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is the creator God from his identity and from the covenant that he has made with Israel. This is again seen in an extended passage in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 18 through 31. And at the very core of that, uh, that passage, uh, we read in Isaiah 40, 22, uh, it is he who is enthroned above the vault of the earth, so that its inhabitants seem as grasshoppers who spread out the skies uh, like gauze. It is he who spreads out the skies like gauze, stretch them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings totentates to naught, makes rulers of the earth as nothing. There is this connection between God as the creator, the distinct, unique creator of the heavens and the earth, and his rulership or his sovereignty over the affairs of men. Because he is the creator, he has the right to rule or to intervene in the affairs of history. Uh, Isaiah goes on to write in that chapter, Isaiah 40, verse 28, Do you not know? Have you not heard? And this is the way God addresses those who need to pay attention, uh, asking these kinds of rhetorical questions. He does the same thing to uh, Sennacherib in the answer to the prayer down in... Um, uh, down in verse 25, he says, Did you not hear long ago how I made it? Uh, so again, that emphasis of creation is central uh, to the, the prayer and the address of God. And Isaiah 40, 28 goes on to say, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is God from of old, creator of the earth from end to end. He never grows faint or weary. His wisdom cannot be fathomed. He gives strength to the weary and fresh vigor to the spent. So he is the one who is able to empower and strengthen those who are trusting in him, and that's connected to the fact that he is the creator. You can't have one without the other. I hear people say, well, the Bible just kind of tells us generally that God made everything, but it doesn't tell us how. Wait a minute. The Bible does indeed tell us how God created everything. And it gives us some passages that are pretty specific. For example, in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 11, says that in six days God created the heavens and the earth. We'll look at that passage in just a second to see that it is, it's embedded in one of the commandments of the Ten Commandments for the, uh, uh, for the uh, commandment to obey the Sabbath. And if that's not true, if God didn't create in six literal 24-hour days, then the whole basis for the mandate to uh, observe the Sabbath is destroyed. I mean, if God created in 10 billion years, 
then you only have to work the first six billion years and rest the seventh billion year. Well, maybe we're not there yet, so why rest? I mean, easy, if, if, if the whole law for the Sabbath is built upon an understanding that Genesis 1 must be understood to speak of literal uh, 24-hour days. So what we see here in this introduction of this prayer is that Hezekiah is praying not to some amorphous generic God, but he is praying to a specific God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is defined as the creator God of the heavens and the earth. Now, there's about three observations I want to make on this. First of all, what we see here is the uniqueness of the God of Israel cannot be separated from his identification with the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant and, and, and the Davidic covenant. Now, the reason I bring the Davidic covenant into this is because when God answers the prayer, in verse 34 he says, I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. So when God answers the prayer, he brings the Davidic covenant specifically in to his answer. So these three covenants are the foundation for this prayer. So the first point is the uniqueness of the God of Israel cannot be separated from his identification with the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. You can't have one without the other. He is the unique God, the one-of-a-kind God, the God who is Israel's God alone because he is the God who gave them these covenants objectively in history. The second thing we can observe from this is that the uniqueness of the God of Israel cannot be distinguished or separated from his role as the creator, the creator God who therefore has the right to rule in human history. You can't have part of this without the other part of this. You can't say that, that God is unique and distinct and is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob without including the fact that he is the creator God, and on the basis of his being the creator God, he has the right to rule in the affairs of men. Now, in these covenants, the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, specifically as, as, the, as the Mosaic covenant relates to Israel, we have the commandment related to the Sabbath that's described in Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. This is the longest commandment. And God tells Israel, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. The Sabbath day is the sign of the, of the Mosaic covenant. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Holy means to keep it separate or distinct. The word holy doesn't mean morally pure. It's not a synonym for being righteous in the sense of integrity. It is a word from Kadash meaning to be set apart for the service of God, to be set apart for the, for the use of God. Uh, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Keep it distinct. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. Now, wait a minute. I don't recall in any of the writings of the rabbis an argument that these days should be understood as 24-hour days. I don't understand. I don't see any arguments that these days are literary frameworks. Now, the reason I say that is because if you read Genesis 1 and you read a lot of the literature that's trying to avoid the literal implications of Genesis 1 is describing a literal 24-hour, six-consecutive-day creation week, the literature there tries to avoid that with all of these other 
attempts to assimilate creation to the uh, findings of modern science that is predicated on an old earth view. And so uh, the arguments are, well, the days there are really long periods of time. Well, the argument against that is that whenever you have the Hebrew word yom associated with a with a, um, a number, it always refers to a literal 24-hour day. Further, if you read the context of Genesis 1, it talks about, and it was evening and it was morning, day one. Well, it's further defined by the limitations of evening and morning. This, again, indicates a 24-hour a 24-hour day. Now, another attempt that's made today is to say, well, these were just literary frameworks. They were not necessarily literal 24-hour days, but but the writer of the Scripture just organized it this way as a nice uh, literary tool. But then when you come to Exodus and we read six days, you shall labor and do all your work, if those days are understood to be uh, a geological age or millions of years, then you don't really have to rest on the seventh day until you get to the seventh geological age or the seventh million year. Uh, the, the commandment assumes the days of Genesis 1, the pattern of Genesis 1, is a literal 24-hour, six-consecutive-day framework. So six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Shabbat, a Sabbath of the Lord your God. You shall not do any work. You, your son or daughter, your male or your female slave, your cattle or the stranger who is within your settlements. Why? Well, it, God explains it. How about that? For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them. That includes the animals that got fossilized later on, we believe, by the events of the Noahic flood. He, it says he made everything then. He didn't make a bunch of things before that. That are, that predate that creation. Everything is made within this six literal 24, 24 hour, six consecutive day framework. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it, or sanctified it, consecrated, same word, uh, same word base, kadosh. So we see that the core of the Ten Commandments, which is the sign of the Mosaic Covenant, the Sabbath, that whole commandment is based on a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1. And this is reverberates throughout the Old Testament. Look at passages like Exodus 31:17. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day rested and was refreshed. See, it's not just an aberration that this got in there. It's repeated, and it's articulated again and again and again as being part of the foundation of Israel's relationship with God. Nehemiah, this is after the exile, uh, some hundred and, uh, 100 years or so after the exile. Uh, this is the third return, the group that returns under Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in approximately 440 B.C., Nehemiah prays, you alone are 
the Lord. Again, the uniqueness of God is emphasized and it is inseparably connected to his being the creator of the heavens and the earth and all that is in him. He goes on to say, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and everything on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve them all. The host of heaven, that is the angels, are the armies of heaven. Literally, that host is just an old English word for armies. The armies of heaven worship you. Psalm 96.5, for all the gods of the peoples are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. In Jeremiah 32.17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. There is nothing too hard for you. So what we see here is that in terms of the doctrine of prayer, the uniqueness of the God of Israel can't be separated from his identification with the Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, or the Davidic covenant. If you, if you want him to be the God of those covenants, he has to be, the, be um, that, that's his position as the God of Israel, and that's what makes him unique. And his uniqueness then in point two cannot be distinguished from his role as the creator God which gives him the right to rule in the affairs of human history. And then the third point now is that prayer presumes that God has the right to intervene in our lives and to change things. That's what uh, why Hezekiah is praying here. He says, you alone of all the king, you are God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth, and then that becomes his basis for calling upon God to intervene and to uh, save them. And the conclusion we reach from this is that prayer to the sovereign God of Israel is based on the literal reality of the Genesis account of creation. His terminology here, his verbiage, comes right out of those passages in Exodus and in Genesis 1. You can't separate or distinguish that. There's no basis to come in and say, well, you know, this is just some sort of, uh, this is just the Jewish myth for creation, and now we have a scientific explanation, and somehow you can fit them together. Let me see six literal 24-hour days versus, what, 10, 10 billion years, 20 billion years. How do you reconcile that? It's irreconcilable unless you want to be an intellectual, uh, multiple personality. One day you believe one thing, another day you're going to believe something else. You just want to be completely um, inconsistent. And this is really the ground of all these prayers that we read in the Psalms and everything else is that God is the God, of the creator God. He's the God who entered into these covenants with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who entered into the covenant with Moses and gave the Torah. He is the God of David who promised to David an eternal descendant upon his throne. Uh, the Messiah, who we believe is Jesus Christ, who is the eternal, also the eternal Son of God. He is not just the, in his humanity, the Son of David, but in his deity, he is uh, eternal God as well. That's the only way you can have an eternal descendant upon David's throne, is for that descendant to be eternal, which means he's not human. He has to be something more than human. And so that is why we see that fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So the starting point of an effective prayer is understanding who you're praying to. 
and truly believing who he is as the God who can intervene in the affairs of history and the affairs of your history, the affairs of your life and the circumstances of your life, and truly provide solutions to the problems that you and I face. So the foundation is that we need to understand who we're praying to. God is not some uh, heavenly Santa Claus. He's not some magic genie that if we just rub our Bible three times that God pops out and says, you know, I'll give you three wishes. But it's an understanding of who he is and the promises that he has made in his word. And then it's on the basis of those promises that we can come to him in prayer and appeal to him to intervene on the basis of those promises. So that is what underlies what Hezekiah is saying in verse 16. Now, next time we'll come back and look at the specifics of the next of the of the rest of his petition and supplication, and then how God answers it, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You're the God of David. You are the God of Israel in the Old Testament, who promised that through Israel there would come a blessing to all mankind, a blessing to the entire human race, and that this blessing would come through the seed of David. And it is through the greater son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, who is the eternal God who took on flesh, who came to dwell among us, the Scripture teaches, that he might go to the cross as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world and to fulfill the depiction of the sacrifices from the Old Testament, that sin would need to be taken care of by a substitute, but one that was capable of truly uh, receiving the full penalty for sin so that it would be removed, and that we can have salvation simply by believing, trusting in him as your provision, your sacrifice uh, for sin. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never trusted Christ as their Savior, uh, who have never understood that there is this eternal condemnation on man because of sin, that there is a solution as you have answered the prayer, as you answered the prayer of Hezekiah, you answered the prayer of so many for salvation, and that comes through faith in Jesus Christ, trusting in him and him alone. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. Father, we often do not pray. We frequently do not pray as we should, and we do not take our prayer life as seriously as we should. Father, we pray that you would challenge us, uh, each one of us, in terms of the application of the principles of prayer and our own personal relationship with you, and that we might recognize that this is to be a priority in our spiritual life. And we pray that you would challenge us with these things. In Christ's name, amen.